Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, November 16th. After 11 months of hearing this message throughout the 2021 pro tennis season, the theme remains the same on today's podcast. The next-gen ATP is here, folks. It's their world. We're just living in it. Now, certainly, last week's results were going to be slanted towards the next-gen. You had the next-gen ATP finals happening in Milan. was another fantastic, successful event that saw Carlos Alcaraz stand as a man amongst boys. And yes, he was the youngest player in the field. And yet, he was also clearly the best as he earns the title, drops just one set along the way. And yeah, I know, no ad scoring, short sets up to four, that fast four format, so polarizing on tennis Twitter. I'll talk about that a little bit on today's show. I imagine many of you know where I stand at this point, but I want to contextualize Carlos Alcaraz's success. The 18-and-a-half-year-old Spaniard now, he's been sensational. The story of these past 15 months, really since the tour began last August, you date back to his challenger success, obviously what he's done at the ATP level this season. He stands out amongst the greats, sincerely, I want to compare him to some of those greats on today's show. Of course, I want to offer my thoughts on the rest of the field as well. Talk about the Americans who stood out, Sebastian Corda, Brandon Nakashima. Talk about why we should all be on the lookout for Sebastian Baez come 2022. But then, of course, we had another ATP event happening in Stockholm. And look, anytime a next-gen American wins a title, you know we're going to be talking about it on this show. Tommy Paul earns the first ATP title of his career, was a heck of a run to the title as well, knocks out Andy Murray, knocks out Francis Tiafo, gets a win over both Denis Shapovalov and Taylor Fritz on the way to his first title, and now it's mission accomplished. He said at the start of the season, I want to end the year top 50. He's done that. I want to talk about his performance, what's clicked so well for him down the home stretch of this 2021 season. Of course, it's worth mentioning the run to the final for Shapovalov. Some much needed momentum for him heading into the 2022 season. I want to talk about semifinal runs from FAA Tiafo, the growth we saw from both of them here this year. And then, of course, I want to talk a brief bit about the challenger ITF results. We saw Chris Eubanks earning a title, Talon Greekspor, eighth challenger title of the year, extending his record. And then, you know, two stateside ITF. ITF events, you know I'm going to geek out. Of course, before all of that, two quick things. A, a huge shout out, a huge thank you to head coach Michael Woodson and the entire Baylor Bear program. They tweet, uh, treated, tweeted, hey, great shot. They treated super producer Daniel Westoff and I like family this weekend as we were down in Waco. And all of you listeners are going to be privy to all of the content we generated down there over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to ask for a bit of patience as I look to see if my fingers still work, if I can indeed write the way I believe I was once capable of writing. So be on the lookout for all of that content on our website, crackrackets.com. Of course, also, I have to thank all of you listeners, our Crack Rackets Patreon family. A, for your patience. I know there were fewer podcasts than desired last week, and there's plenty of other things for us to be discussing right now. Obviously, start of the college tennis season right around the corner. We're going to get our college contender series rocking and rolling this this week today, as a matter of fact, if you have a head on over to the Great Shot podcast feed, you'll see 
my conversations with both John Parsons and then Matt Stachowiak, Chris Halioris, breaking down our number 10 teams entering the 2022 season for the women. That's Ohio State for the men. That's Kentucky. You're also going to be able to hear my conversation with Kentucky men's tennis head coach Cedric Kaufman. Now, I'm hoping to get coach Melissa Schaub on the Cracked Interviews podcast soon. That's why we delayed for as long as we did. Unfortunately, just been difficult with both of our schedules to find a time to chat. Nevertheless, I'm going to get that done this week. That's my promise to you listeners. And again, we're getting that series rocking and rolling because we are fewer than 10 weeks away from the start of the 2022 dual match season. And obviously, you listeners want to know who should you be watching out for throughout the course of this year. So be on the lookout for all of that content to drop over the next few days. You can find all of it at the website, crackrackets.com. Of course, none of that happens without the consistent support we get from our Crack Rackets Patreon family and, of course, from all of you listeners. And here on the mini break, these pods wouldn't be possible without the support we get from our friends over at Tennis Point. You go to tennis-point.com right now. You'll find all of the best equipment at all of the best prices. You use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off off your order not only we get free two-day shipping on orders exceeding $75. Not only will you get a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, you'll also let them know that we sent you there. So again, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. If you haven't, tune in to our Tuesday episodes of Tennis Point Tuesday. Obviously, we'll have one of those in store for you later today, although I think we're going to push that to Wednesday this week because, again, there is so much happening across the tennis world. I'm going to be talking to Ben Rothenberg about the WTA Finals as well as the story surrounding Peng Shui and her speaking out against the Chinese government. Obviously, we haven't heard from her since, and that's generated so much concern across the tennis world. The WTA ATP coming out with forceful statements. I want to break that down. I want to talk about the tennis we've seen in Guadalajara as well. We're going to be doing that with a returning champion, New York Times' Ben Rothenberg, on a show. I think it's going to come out later today on this feed, if not on the Great Shot podcast feed. Again, busy times. I know. We're flying the channels with content. We're making up for lost time here at Cracked Rackets. That's how busy we've all been the past week as followers of the tennis world. I know uh, all of you will enjoy all of those conversations, all of them available at our website, crackrackets.com. But with all that said, let's get into today's show. And the place we have to start is with 18-year-old Carlos Alcaraz. Now, yes, he was the favorite entering the next-gen finals in Milan. But simply put, he stole the show. And of course, we have grown to expect so much of Carlos Alcaraz throughout the course of this season. He's broken into the ATP Top 35. He's Top 25 in the ATP points race. He won his first title earlier this season in Umag, beat Stefano Tsitsipas in a five-set thriller at the U.S. Open to make the quarterfinals of that event and beats Yannick Sinner at the Paris Masters a few weeks ago. Was so impressive in beating Andy Murray, Dan Evans, Matteo Berrettini to make the semifinals of Vienna. And yet what was so impressive about Carlos Alcaraz is despite being the youngest player in this next-gen field, and let's be clear, there was no Felix Ogier-Aliassime. There was no Yannick Sinner in this field. Both of those guys eligible to play this event this year, which is sort of ridiculous. No Jensen Brooksby either for whatever it's worth. And yet, Carlos Alcaraz was a man amongst boys. Simply put, his game was that much better 
than everyone else's in the field. And you look for Carlos Alcaraz, he won over 73% of his first serve points in every match he played. That would be impressive enough, but what's even more impressive, he won over 84% of his first serve points in three of the five matches he played. He won 90% of his service points against Sebastian Baez in the semifinal of this event. Was broken just two times throughout the course of a fast four format. A fast four format that, of course, sees no ad scoring as well. Was broken just two times in five matches. Didn't face a break point against Holger Rune. I mean... For Carlos Alcaraz, who relatively has struggled with his hold percentage relative to the rest of his game. You look at it for him here in 2021, 75.9%. That number is outside the top 30 in the ATP stats leaderboard. And you want a specific number for Carlos Alcaraz. You look again, hold percent, the average of the top 50 players is 81.3%. For Sebastian, uh, for Carlos Alcaraz, excuse me, to be at 759 yeah, that's a little bit lower. You look for him, he's 36th overall in hold percentage. That was not the case at the next-gen finals. Against his peers, his serve looked more than developed, and it's the improvement on serve that continues to be so impressive. It's just the improvement in every aspect of his game with every match that he plays. He's a computer that's consistently and constantly gathering data you know, analyzing that data and then implementing what he learns into his game. And early on, the serve sat a little bit short and the backhand felt attackable. Some of the backhands he hit throughout the course of these next-gen finals were just sensational. The one I would point to early on, second set, next-gen final, the final final, not next-gen finals, excuse me, the final match against Sebastian Corda. Corda gets a love 40, break point, or it might not have been love 40, excuse me, it might have been 30, 40, or deuce point, break point. Point is, he gets a backhand deep cross court into the Carlos Alcaraz backhand corner. Had worked beautifully, hit the forehand cross court with depth to open up that backhand cross court shot, and yet Alcaraz comes up with this ridiculous down-the-line pass. One of many ridiculous down-the-line backhand passes he hit throughout the course of the event and just... You know, again, his ability to track down that extra ball. Whenever he gets his racket on a forehand slice on the stretch, you know that ball is going to drop in on the baseline and just buy him a chance to get back to neutral. And, you know, his ability to hit that forehand on the run, whether it's down the line by you, whether it's finding inside-out returns on the ad side where he hit some just, you know, against Sebastian Baez, if you go watch the highlights of the semifinals on Tennis TV's YouTube channel, you see on this uh, one break point for Carlos Alcaraz, love 40. And again, he beat Sebastian Baez 4-2-4-1-4-2. It was just, you know, he, he's outside the alley. He's outside outside of where the alley would be, almost at the freaking, you know, uh, spectator's booth where he's hitting a forehand inside out for a winner as a return. That's something you only do when you have immense amount of confidence and immense amount of talents. And Carlos Alcaraz has both of those things right now coming out of this season I mean, he's been sensational in just about every aspect, on just about every court, in every condition. What's so impressive is how comfortable he is at the net. And of course, the natural comparisons are going to be to Rafael Nadal, a young Spaniard having success. Haven't we just seen that? Of course, the answer is Rafa. But it's a different game style. You know, Alcaraz is more aggressive than Rafa was at that age, particularly on non-clay court surfaces. And of course, the physicality, the discipline of Rafael Nadal, cross-court, 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 down the line. He built one of the three greatest men's career of all time on that discipline. And no one is holding Carlos Alcaraz to those standards of accomplishments. No one's saying he's got to go out and win 20 grand slams. But the athletic parallels are 
impossible not to see because just again both of those guys the way they're able to generate out of the uh, the outer thirds of the court the physicality that they both play with their just ability to track down that extra ball the fight they both seem to play with as well and yet you know again Alcaraz on an indoor hard court he had the biggest weapons in the event biggest forehand without question and again the backhand he's able to hit it down the line with pace by you now the variety he plays with the drop shots the short angles how comfortable he is as a volleyer. He is, again, for someone 18 years old, he's, he's not just someone who knows where to go and what to do with the volleyer. The hands that he has, his ability to absorb your pace on your passing shot and just hit the drop volley and comfortable hitting the overhead as well. What's the hole in Carlos Alcaraz's game? I don't see it. And I like to think I watch as much tennis as just about anyone listening to this podcast, just about anyone out there. And, you know, again, yeah, the serve can hang a little bit short, particularly the second serve. And the best players, the Alex Virevs of the world, the Daniel Medvedevs of the world, and of course, the Novak freaking Djokovic's of the world, they'll make him pay. But outside of that, everyone's second serve hangs up a little bit. And Sebastian, uh, Sebastian, I keep doing that because there are a couple of Sebastians in this event. Carlos Alcaraz is only 18 years old. The serve will continue to get better. And given the pace he can show on the forehand wing, on the backhand wing, at the net, is there any, the finesse he shows at the net, is there any reason to think not only he'll become a better spot server, but that he's not going to generate more torque, more pace on that serve? Absolutely not. You look for Carlos Alcaraz again here this season, 47 and 19 overall in the year. He's holding serve 75.9% of the time. Now that's less than ideal. Again, 36 overall amongst the top 50 players lower than the 81.3 average amongst the top 50. But that numbers continue to improve throughout the course of the year. And then, you know, a 30.5% break percentage, that number ranks fourth amongst top 50 players. And if you watched him hit the return of serve against guys who don't have top 25 quality serves, you can tell unless you have a top 25 serve or better, he's just going to tee off on return after return after return. The depth he can generate on the backhand now and then again, the forehand return is just a weapon at, you know, it, it's it's very good at a minimum. It's a weapon when he's setting his feet and turning into that ball. And he can just, you know, he's instant offense because he is that quick twitchy, that athletic, that powerful out of the corners what else is there to say about Carlos Alcarez's game he overwhelmed everyone he played and you look at the score lines you know the whole Garune match 4-3-4-2 for love Rune was doing a really good job keeping up with Alcarez in that first set using the top spin of Alcarez to you know flatten out his forehand and to generate even more pace on his backhand wing and I want to talk about Rune a little bit later because I've liked everything I've seen from Holger Rune on a tennis court here this season maybe not as much his off-court conduct but on the court I've enjoyed well I guess it's the on-court anyways the point being he's been exceptional on the court uh but Alcaraz exposed him over the course of their hour you know 15 minute match and just you know Rune couldn't keep up Juan Manuel Serendolo couldn't keep up Brandon Nakashima kept up about as well as anyone 4-3-4-1-4-3 in their matchup and I thought for in particular Nakashima's ability to absorb the inside out forehand of Carlos Alcaraz Nakashima showing off the prowess of his back and also showing off his efficiency his willingness to move forward force Alcaraz to come up with spectacular things Alcaraz 
Alcaraz was able to do it in the breakers, but that's why that match was so close because Nakashima kept moving forward, kept trying to pressure Alcaraz throughout the course of the match, and yet in crunch time, Alcaraz is able to come up with that passing shot and continued to execute well on his serve throughout the course of the match. Uh, Again, Straight set victory for him there. He overwhelmed Sebastian Baez. Just the the spin, the pace, the weaponry, the physicality. Baez wasn't ready for that matchup. And then again, Corda played him close, but Baez was the more dynamic player. Uh, excuse me, but Alcaraz, I got to stop doing that. Alcaraz was the more dynamic player. That shows you had a lot of fun in Waco this weekend, folks. But nevertheless, Alcaraz was just the more dynamic player. He was more fluid in the outer thirds, and he could match the weaponry, the pace of Sebastian Corda. Quickly, before I move on, just some comparisons, and I know I tweeted this stat out late last night, but just a thought for all of you listeners, because again, I know now it's a very sensitive subject to compare anyone to anything, because we don't want to burden anyone with the sort of standards, particularly of the standards of those of Novak Djokovic, of Rafael Nadal, the very best in men's tennis history. You don't want to burden anyone with those sorts of expectations, because then you're just setting everything up for failure. Certainly, that's one of the lessons we've learned over the past decade as tennis fans, and yet, it's absolutely worth mentioning. Simply, for just uh, contextualizing what Carlos Alcaraz has done. You compare him, you know, again, he's about 18 and a half years old. He was born May 2000, uh, I want to say two or three, May 2003, I guess, given it's 2021. He was, he's like two weeks, you know, relatively, he had two more weeks of pro events than a Djokovic did and about four weeks more, a month more than Nadal. And yet here are rough comparisons for all of them by the time they were 18 and a half years old. Carlos Alcaraz is 107 and 37 overall. That's a 74% win percentage. He's 33 and 18 in ATP level matches. Again, 33 and 18 uh, excuse me, that is, I believe, a 65% win percentage. So he's won 74% of his matches overall, 65% of his matches at the ATP level, 33 and 18. You compare that to Rafa at this point. He was 126 and 53 overall. That's a 70% win percentage, 4% worse than Carlos Alcaraz. 45 and 29, a 61% win percentage in ATP level matches. More wins but a lower win percentage than Carlos Alcaraz at this point. So right now, advantage Alcaraz. Compared to Novak Djokovic, Djokovic was 76-31 and overall. That's a 71% win percentage. Again, 3% less than Carlos Alcaraz. 13-14 and was Djokovic in ATP-level matches. 48% win percentage. Again, advantage Carlos Alcaraz. You want to compare him to some others. Andy Murray, 81 and 32 overall, 72% win percentage advantage Alcaraz, 14 and 10 in ATP tour level matches, 58% win percentage advantage Carlos Alcaraz. Ditto for Alex Virev. Ditto for Yannick Sinner. Ditto for Felix Ogier Aliassime. Now, I can't compare him to Roger Federer because it was a different era and the Challenger Tour wasn't exactly in place when Roger was rising up the rankings. But compared to the modern contemporaries, and I probably should have looked up Del Potro. I didn't. I'm sure it's advantage Alcaraz, though. That's how good Carlos Alcaraz has been up to this point in his career. And that's not to say he's going to continue to succeed at the level that they succeeded at because you look at other guys. Alex Virev's really good right now. You know, Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev, they're really good right now. Novak Djokovic just won three Grand Slams in 2021. And Yannick Sinner's not going anywhere. There's a lot of guys who flash a lot of upside, who've had a lot of success, 
But Carlos Alcaraz has had as much, if not more, success than just about any of them. And it's, you know, he's not going to catch anyone by surprise in 2022, but you look for him now all the way up to number 21 in the ATP points race. You look for him in the live rankings. Carlos Alcaraz ends the year at number 32. That's a career high. You look for him amongst players ranked under the age of 23, fifth highest ranked under the age of 23, third highest under 22. Second highest ranked behind Yannick Sinner under 21. Highest ranked teenager. He's the highest ranked teenager by over 20 spots. Of course, you look at the teenagers right now in the top 100. It's Yannick, uh, it's, excuse me, it's Carlos Alcaraz and Lorenzo Musetti. And again, Alcaraz is about a year younger than Lorenzo Musetti. I, I don't know what else there is to say, folks. He's that good. He is worthy of being named the next-gen champion because he is a rising star. And I've said this for a while now, but I'm going to continue to emphasize it. And it's not a hot take. My six locks to win Grand Slams in the 2020s. Daniel Medvedev, who's already gotten the job done. Alex Virev, Stefano Tsitsipas, Carlos Alcaraz. Oh, excuse me. Spoiler alert. Yannick Sinner, Felix Ogier-Aliassime. And Carlos Alcaraz, he has to be on that list now. What he's accomplished this season, what he's demonstrated on the court from a game perspective. Again, fourth in break percentage. He's 18 years old. The serves aren't phasing him. His serve's only going to get better. It's clear he can win in multiple different ways. Uh, If you're not impressed... Bravo to you. I wish I had those sorts of standards still. Carlos Alcaraz standing out at the next-gen finals, of course. He was not your only standout performer. It's worth mentioning this was a nice result for uh, Sebastian Corda, who, and by the way, actually Sebastian time. Shout out to me for getting it right in crunch time. But you look for Sebastian Corda. He lost only one match throughout the course of this event. It was the match he lost in the final to Carlos Alcaraz. And you look for Sebastian Corda, who earns wins, uh, you know, over Sebastian Baez, Lorenzo Musetti in straight sets in the round robin. What was so impressive in those victories is that his weapons stood out. And watching all of these next-geners play, and I binged watched them all on Monday because obviously we were in Waco all weekend, just didn't have time to follow all of the action. We're working on some other crack racket stuff here. Watching all of those matches simultaneously, it was clear. The Alcaraz forehand was the biggest weapon. Alcaraz was the most developed physically, and I thought, you know, again, the creativity he played with, how comfortable he was moving forward, those things all stood out. What was second in that power ranking list, after all things Alcaraz, was just Sebastian Corda on his front foot. He could match the power tennis of Carlos Alcaraz. They had the biggest weapons in the event and they were in a tier on their own. Now, Corda doesn't have the fluidity of Alcaraz in the outer thirds of the court. And it was clear uh, Sebastian Corda wasn't feeling his best either from a physical standpoint. And look, it's been a long season for Sebastian Corda, a guy who's dealt with injuries throughout the course of his young career, dating back to his time in the juniors. You know, he's played over 55 matches here this season, and yet 36 and 20 overall. And just you look for him throughout the course of this event. Didn't face a break point against Lorenzo Musetti was broken one time or uh, fewer in three of his five matches. Just, you know, again, he, he was able to keep pace with just about anyone. And, you know, against Hugo Gaston, what was so impressive in that five-set first-round match was that, you know, Gaston exposed that lack of fluidity, which Corda is still working on, was thrown in the slices, the drop shots, the lobs, was just changing the contact points and not letting Sebastian Corda hit the ball cleanly or hit the ball from the same location more than two times in a row. And yet, 
you know, Corda was able to sift through that nonsense, was able to buckle out and power on through, as my man Bruce Wayne said in Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. That's a deep cut. Shout out to – if any of you listeners understood that reference, please – Please message me at Great Shot Pod. There is nothing I would like to do more than do a five-minute segment on Batman Beyond Return of the Joker or any of the Batman animated series. Shout out to my father, Michael Gruskin, who, because of him, I just have those episodes memorized. I would say if the Great Shot Podcast wasn't going to be about tennis, it may have been. No, never mind. We'll save that rant for another time. Point being, I mean, Sebastian Corda just... He he really he his focus was, was so impressive and against Brandon Nakashima as well he was never deterred after dropping sets two and three and going down two sets to one in this fast four format it, it, it was just again Nakashima's serve wasn't quite able to to hurt Corda well because Corda does strike the ball so well and he does have that length on the return of serve six foot five and you know you look at his break percentage throughout the course of the year 24.1 that's a top 25 number amongst top 50 players and it's worth mentioning Sebastian Corda still just 21 years old I mean the backhand special there's no denying that he turns into it as well as a Zverev, as a Medvedev, as a Djokovic. Now, it's not quite at that point because he's not the mover that those guys are, so he can't quite generate it as frequently in the outer thirds as those guys can. But when he gets a clean strike on that backhand wing, magic happens. And I think the way the shape of his forehand I've been really encouraged by because it's not as line drive as you would think. And, you know, again, I. Uh, the serve continues to get better. I mentioned that hold percentage average amongst top 50 players, 81.3%. You look for quarter this season, 81one It's a little bit below the average of the top 50, but not by much. It continues to get better. He's an above average returner. And, you know, again, if we're projecting top 25 club for Sebastian Corda moving forward in hold percentage and break percentage, there's usually about nine guys you describe that as. It's a good group for Corda to be hanging out in. And again, his weapons from the baseline, I think he gets better as a volley or more willing moving forward. It's almost like a Stefano Tsitsipas where I don't think he's quite as fluid as Tsitsipas is. And yet, I don't think movement's going to be an issue for him given his size. I just think he needs to get a little bit stronger. And at 21 years old, you can say that about just about anyone. Unequivocal step forward for Sebastian Corda here this season wins. A title in, uh, ex- or excuse me, wins. Yeah, his first title in uh, Parma back in May makes another final in Delray Beach. Final here at the Next Gen Finals. He's ending the year in the top fifty. You look for him in the points race, even higher than that. Sebastian Corda, number thirty-two. Yeah, round of sixteen, Australian Open. Very, very capable. And what's so scary is how many Americans you can say that about, but we'll get back to that topic a little bit later. Still super impressed by Court again. His weapons just, he outlasted Hugo Gaston, outpowered Lorenzo Musetti, Sebastian Baez, and then that matchup against Brandon Nakashima. You know, again, his weapons were bigger. Nakashima was disciplined, and credit to Brandon Nakashima, I'll talk about next here. Uh, again, you know, beats Holgarune in four sets to get things started and, you know, beat Surindolo in four before getting knocked out by Alcaraz and Corda back to back. But man, Nakashima's, uh, again, everything Alcaraz, number one. Corda's backhand in particular, but his power when he's on his front foot from the baseline, that was the second most notable thing. The third most notable thing from the event is just how good Brandon Nakashima's backhand is, in particular that backhand up the line. Now, it's not quite at the level of Sebastian Corda. I just I think that's a product, byproduct of size, but it's damn near close. And again, his ability to time that ball so exceptionally, to change direction with it, to take it early. And you know, for Brandon, what's been so impressive, I used to think he was a bad volleyer. 
I was incorrect. He's a comfortable volleyer now, and adding that piece to his game is going to be so valuable because he doesn't overwhelm you with a 135-mile-per-hour serve. He doesn't overwhelm you with his plus-one forehand, but he's just so efficient in every shot selection that he makes, changing directions, you know, recognizing a short ball that I can sneak up in behind if I go up the line and take that ball early on the rise. And you know that's what he does with his forehand wing, takes it early, changes direction with it to make up for the fact that it's not the most powerful powerful forehand of not only the next-gen crew, but of top 50 aspiring ATP players. And yet again, I don't think it's a weakness the way it was for Francis Tiafo early in his career. I don't think it's particularly attackable unless you've got an elite weapon like a Sebastian Corda, like a Carlos Alcaraz, who, you know, with heavy pace either via the serve or via the plus one ball can break down that side or at least generate a short ball off of it. But again, Brandon becomes a better mover, and I don't think movement's ever going to be a problem for him. He's not the elite of elite athletes, but he's a good enough mover in the goal— not quite as explosive as Duffy Goffin, probably a half a tier below that. But again, movement's not going to be an issue for him, and I just—I really can't emphasize this enough. It is the progression he's made as a volleyer. I know that's a small thing, but— Given he doesn't have the overwhelming plus one weapon, he's going to have to take advantage of taking time and space away from opponents. And you do that with the out-of-the-air volley by you know recognizing when you can move forward, taking time away. Of course, you look for Nakashima. He's held serve 84.1% of the time in his tour-level matches this season. That would be above the average. He's broken serve 21% of the time. That number feels low because he flashes as an excellent returner on this guy who averaged a 26% break percentage throughout the course of his challenger career I think that number is a byproduct of the lack of the elite explosive first step I do think a big plus one you know a big forehand uh, serve to the forehand and a big plus one ball can expose that lack of elite quickness from Brandon but I see that break percentage in continuing to increase with a more repetitions and a bigger sample size but b as he grows more comfortable seeing that level of serve Brandon's been excellent this year. And again, you look for him in the points race, Nakashima 57th overall. You look for him in the ATP rankings. Brandon Nakashima entering 2022 is going to be a top 75 player, currently number 67. I mean, again, all these records, by the way, since the, I mean, you know, more top 70 players than any season here in the 21st, at the end of any season here in the 21st century. And, and, you know, you got to go back to the 1990s. We've had 11 ATP finalists as American men here this season. You got to go back to the 1990s to find a number that big. Anytime you're comparing a year of American men's tennis to the 1990s, something is going right. And that's the case for us American men's tennis fans and Sebastian Corda, Brandon Nakashima, a big component of that success. Again, Nakashima's positioned himself extraordinarily well for another jump in 2022, 67 in the rankings. He's going from playing ATP 500 and 250 qualifying at the start of this season to now he's playing qualifying for the Masters events. Now he's, you know, doing just all the things you would want, you know, a 20-year-old to do. And that's the crazy thing. With someone with such a mature game, Branson's only 20 years old. There's still a lot of progress to make, and I think he's gotten better as a server. You know, again, I think the physicality is going to continue to come. Uh, Super impressive run for Brandon Nakashima uh, as he reaches the semifinals. And again, it it felt like in terms of the tiers entering the event, given the withdrawals we saw from Brooksby, from Sinner, from FAA, it was Alcaraz on a tier of his own. 
Korda, Nakashima, you know, chomping at the bit, and then everyone else in the field sort of battling it out for that fourth spot. That's why it was so fascinating to see Carlo, uh, Sebastian Baez, excuse me, wow, this time I flipped them. I don't know what is wrong with me here, but anyways, to see Sebastian Baez take that semifinal spot, and, you know, in particular for Sebastian Baez, he had played I, I believe one other hard court match throughout the course of this season. Excuse me, one other hard court event. It was the U.S. Open qualifying, where you know it's worth mentioning he beats Govananda, Christian Harrison, before bowing out in three sets, seven six in the third to Chris Eubanks. I mean, Cord has won four challenger titles, I believe, this season, fifty one and sixteen overall. All of that other success coming on clay courts. He did play uh, Wimbledon qualifying as well. He lost first round three sets to Matthew Ebden, and yet. When you watch Sebastian Baez play, you know, the 20, soon-to-be 21-year-old, he's more than just a clay quarter, folks, and obviously up to number 111 in the world, which is a new career high on the, you know, based on the success he's had on the clay courts, and he's back on them this week playing another challenger event, but, you know, again, for Baez, I love the pace and the depth and the drive he gets on that forehand wing in particular. His plus one forehand is a weapon, and I actually like his serve a little bit more than the natural comparison you're going to make for Sebastian Baez, a short Argentinian. Hmm. Sounds like someone I know. Hmm. Short Argentinian. Juan Martin Del Potro? He's short by today's standards. No, that's not it. Federico Del Bonis? No, that's not the comparison we want to make. Uh, Guillermo Coria? No, that's not it. Guillermo Canas? Is that com- the comparison? Oh, it's probably Diego Schwartzman. That's the one we're all looking for, but it's not the same game. Schwartzman doesn't play as much line drive tennis. Schwartzman's very much a point constructor, and I'm not saying he can't drive a ball down the line, but he's a guy who wants to go cross, cross, short angle before opening up the down the line. Sebastian Baez takes that down the line early. Sebastian Baez wants to be moving forward, taking the ball early on the rise and, you know, again, taking time, space away from players. I like the depth he gets on his serve as well. And you look for him this season, you know, the 73.7% hold percentage is far from ideal. That is Schwartzman-esque. He's also break 42.4% of the time. And yes, the majority of that has come at the challenger level. But come on, over 40%, you're breaking serve essentially every other time. That's elite. That's not good. That's not great. That's elite. That's exceptional. And yes, that number will come back to reality as he plays more ATP level matches next season. And obviously with so much challenger success spread out throughout the course of the year, uh, he's going to have to have success. You know, when he wins a South American event and earlier this season, worth mentioning, he played, you know, qualifying where he got through in Santiago before losing to Holger Rune. Of course, the next week he goes on to beat Holger Rune, first round of the Santiago Challenger to win that event. But Again, when when Sebastian Baez wins one of the South American stretch events next year, shouldn't surprise anyone. I love, you know, again, the draw. I don't think he's quite as fluid as Diego Schwartzman as a mover yet. I do think he's better at taking the ball early on the rise and drive. I think there's a little bit more drive, a little bit more pace on those ground strokes. And I think he's a better volleyer or at least a more willing volleyer at this stage of his career. 51 and 16, you win 76% of your matches. You've got our attention here as tennis fans. And again, he just... He took advantage of Lorenzo Musetti's court positioning. On an indoor hard court match, he was the one moving forward. He was the aggressor. You know, again, he was not phased by the junk thrown at him by Hugo Gaston. For a guy who hadn't had played three hard court matches throughout the course of this season, he looked awfully comfortable on the indoor hard courts. Now, you know, Corda and Alcaraz took it to him. 
But that's uh, that's just indicative, I think, of the lack of exposure to those sorts of weapons on this sort of surface. I think Sebastian Baez is a computer that is gathering data. I think the anger he showed after losing to Sebastian Corda, I kind of loved that because it just showed me how serious he was entering the event that, yeah, he wasn't just there for the pageantry. He wanted to win. And yeah, there was a smile on his face against, particularly in his win over uh, Hugo Gaston to clinch that semifinal spot that you could tell, you know, he was certainly happy to be amongst that field and to have earned that accomplishment because that's what he was there to do, to show that he is, uh, he does belong amongst this group of peers. And again, at 20 years old, he's not in the conversation with the Runes, with the Alcarazes, the Cordas, the Nakashimas uh, of the world. He probably should be, uh, certainly after this sort of season. And, you know, again, he deserves to have spotlight on him, but he's got to prove it at the ATP level. And certainly Australian Open qualifying, if he has to play it, will be an opportunity to do so. 111, I mean, you know he's going to play more events at the end of this year to try and build that ranking up so that he can get into the main draw. But Bias was one of the biggest winners of this event. tipsy-turvy season for Lorenzo Musetti comes to an end now. I suppose the positive, he's ranked number 59 in the world, and at 19 years old, to be top 75 before you're 20, that's a win. No doubt about that. You get to craft your schedule next season knowing you're getting into the majority of the slams, and you know, you're going to probably get the chance to play qualifying at all of the Masters events at a minimum as well, certainly uh, at the start of the season. And once you get to the clay courts, that's where Lorenzo Musetti has made the name for himself. He's got those round of 16 Roland Garros points in his back pocket all season. But at the same time, you know, it, it hasn't been the best year for him who, you know, he lost, I I believe it was what, eight out of 10 matches or uh, excuse me, 12 out of 14 matches at one point of the season and 14 out of 17 matches uh, at one point towards the end of the season finishes 36 and 31 overall and just could not find his rhythm down the home stretch. And, you know, there's a lot to like about Lorenzo Musetti. He's got the athleticism. He's got the shot making. He's got the craft and the finesse. But the ones and twos, the basic mechanics of the points, those are the things he struggles on. In particular, for a guy who can do B, C, and D so well, what's plan A? What's going to win Lorenzo Musetti easy points throughout the course of his career? That's the question moving forward. The court positioning has to get better because, yes, he is comfortable moving forward. At the same time, he usually likes to be 12 feet behind the net before moving forward. And, yeah, he can hit a ton of drop shots, but how good are you when your best shot is your drop shot? Unless you're, you know, Marketa Van Drusseva. Well, yeah, you know, you, sh- you leave a little bit to be desired there if you're Lorenzo Musetti. So, you know, again— for him to get a win over Gaston in five sets in particular, I believe longest match in next-gen finals history. Obviously, that's a win for him given he's on home soil. But a lot of questions about Lorenzo Musetti. More questions than answer, I would, I would say, coming out of 2021. Nevertheless, again, winning position for him entering next season. I don't know what to make of Hugo Gaston. I mean, you know, he goes 0-3, but all three of his matches were entertaining. Two of his three matches go five sets. And the drop shots, the the slice, the the speed, the leftiness, the, the craft, there's a buzzword. It's all impressive for the 21-year-old. And now he is top 75. And life becomes that much easier for him. And he's got those Paris Masters quarterfinal points stashed away at the end of the year to allow him to play more ATP-level matches this season. At the same time, I don't know. How do those weapons hold up over the course of 52 weeks at the ATP level? I don't know. 
your guess is as good as mine. I mean, the craft is intriguing. He can do things others cannot with a tennis racket. At the same time, again, watching Korda weather the storm, find solutions, and just you know make the match a tennis match and not the junk, there's going to be a lot of guys who are able to do that, particularly when it's not a fast four format and it's not a deuce point. And Hugo Gaston's always going to thrive on the deuce point. He had a drop shot lob combo against Korda on a deuce point that may have been the shot sequence of the tournament. But it's int- I don't know. Uh, you know, again, what's the upside? Is he a top 25 player? I mean, 21 years old, I suppose, but you already see the speed. Is he going to get much faster? Certainly get stronger. The serve could get a little bit bigger. I don't know. It's something to monitor uh, moving forward. And, you know, you look at last, but, uh, Sir, you know, Juan Manuel Serendolo, who goes 0-3, but, you know, does win a set in each of his three matches at the same time. He's 12 feet behind the baseline, and you look for him this season. These were his only hard-court matches of the year. I mean, he's up to number 89 in the world, nine, uh, 20 years old, wins his first ATP title, but of course has to defend those points in Cordoba at the end of February. And, you know, a ton of clay court challenger success for him sprinkled throughout the course of the year. But, you know, again, the serve, it, it's a little Brooksby-ish and just, you know, you look for him, he made over 72% of his first serves in each of his matches and yet, you know, one fewer than 60% of his first serve points. And, you know, again, just doesn't wow you in terms of the serve and he can hit his spots, but that doesn't have the big overwhelming plus one ball and just, you know, reads the game really well, is very fluid as a mover, but just, does, you know, wants to be 6, 12 feet behind the baseline, needs to find a way to be more aggressive, be more assertive, can hit a lot of different shots, but again, I need more repetitions for him on hard courts. Uh, I don't want to say it was a bad performance for him because he did get sets off of Rune, Nakashima, and Alcaraz. That's a brutal group. And if I could do anything, it would have been to trade probably Lorenzo Musetti or I probably would have traded Hugo Gaston for Holger Rune to make the groups a little bit more fair because I think Rune, Baez, Korda, and Musetti is a fair group. And then Alcaraz, Nakashima, you know, uh, Surindolo, and... Hugo Gaston, you probably get the same people advancing out of Group A. Group B, ooh, I would have loved to see Rune versus Sebastian Baez on an indoor hardcourt because obviously their clay court matchups were pretty entertaining. Uh, all of that said, Surindolo was fine. I don't think it was it was you know it wasn't great, but it was fine. I need to see more in 2021, uh, 2022. Excuse me, and it's worth noting he is right back on court as well as is Holger Rune, who I'm all in on as well. I mean, the 18-year-old is that good. He's got the weapons. He's got the feel. He's got the athleticism. I'm telling you folks, it, it, it it's like Yannick Sinner. Just give it a little bit more time. I know he's gotten a ton of wild cards. I don't, but like you can just see it when you watch him play. Like it's not quite the overwhelming pace of Yannick Sinner, but you can just tell the way he reads the point and the mindset that he has to, you know, again, hit that on the run forehand and just take it early on the rise. And, you know, again, the depth he generates on the backhand, the feel he has as well, it just works. And I know it hasn't been as fast as the as the Sinners, as the Alcaraz is, but he's coming. He's coming. And I mean, you look for Holger Rune, 74 and 29 in his last 52 weeks, 67 and 27 overall this season. You know, won a challenger the week before the next gen finals. Is playing a challenger the week after. You look for him. He wants to push, make that top 100 here by the end of the season. You look for Holger Rune in terms of points accumulated. Uh, he has certainly been that good as you look for him overall, 69th in the points race here this year. I mean, yeah. He's probably going to get into the Australian Open on his own ranking, and he's a former world junior number one. And again, 
the serve leaves a little bit to be desired and he's only holding 77.5% of the time but he's also breaking serve over 30.2 you know percent of the time he's at 30.2 and yeah that's against challenger level competition but we say it all the time 30% it's not good it's not very good it's elite and while I do think it's mentioning the forehand swings a little bit big and on a quicker surface and against top 25 opponents again with big weapons big serves big plus one forehands Rooney may struggle. We'll leave that ball a little bit short. At the same time, when he has a little bit more time and on a clay court surface in particular, that forehand is a weapon. And some, you know, some of the on-the-run forehands he hit in that first set against Carlos Alcaraz, they were special. And he's 18 years old. It's just all of the pieces are there. The feel is there. The skill set will not be what lets Holger Rune down. I promise you that. So he's absolutely one you circle for a big breakout ATP tour level campaign in 2022. But again, I know that's what, 45 minutes here on the next gen finals. I hope that makes up for the lack of coverage throughout the course of the week. Obviously, this podcast started as a next gen podcast. I once upon a time considered myself a next gen reporter. I don't know at this point if I still qualify. I know there are a lot of youngsters out there. Nah, come on. I'm still next gen. Absolutely. You look at the old men like Ben Rothenberg, who again will be joining us tomorrow to talk all things WTA, to talk all things Punk Shui. Um, but yeah, it's just I'm such a fan of this event to highlight the game's young stars, to put them on a platform to compete against one another, battle it out. You could tell these guys cared. Again, Carlos Alcaraz wanted to stand out. He wanted to Join the ranks of Hyun Chung, who, by the way, next year beats Djokovic, makes the semifinals. Stefano Tsitsipas, next year, makes the Australian Open semifinals. Yannick Sinner, breakout 2021 campaign, top 10 in the world. He was the 2019 next-gen champion. Winners of this event matter. This event has mattered. The confidence boost you get from being the top of the class amongst your peers, we've seen that confidence translate to the next seasons. And Carlos Alcaraz didn't need this confidence boost, but that doesn't mean it's not going to help. And just, again, I love this because you want to highlight the game's future stars. We're going to move beyond the days of Roger, Rafa, Novak. Who are the game's next greats? It's very clear Carlos Alcaraz is on the short list to be in competition for that top tier status. And, you know, again, you look up and down, uh, you know, I just, I like the experimentation as well. We should have fun with this sort of event. This isn't for ATP points. This is for fans to enjoy, to get to know these players and put them on a pedestal and put them in uncomfortable situations, such as a no ad, all deciding points, such as, you know, the fast four format where you blink and you've lost a first set and one break matters that much more. Therefore, every point is that much more significant. Now, I understand some of you, you know, are, you want to see the long battles. You want to see the two-hour, three-hour, four-hour, five-hour slogs because you think those battles, those, you know, again, that physicality and that, you know, never say, you know, it's not over till the last point is one and slug it out sort of affairs. That defines tennis. That's what so many of the great moments in our sports have been built upon. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying one can enjoy those moments and also find joy in these moments. It's not a life or death thing. It's not Hatfields or McCoys here. You don't have to pick between one or the other. You can enjoy both. I think there's place in the schedule for both. Now, again, more broadly, does tennis, you know, does tennis have to become a shorter product, a more television consumable product where matches aren't lasting three, four, five, six hours to become more broadly popular? not only globally, but domestically as well, to just, again, get that, you know, become more broadcastable for TV. That's a separate discussion. From a competitive aspect, 
an all-deciding point, a winner-take-all point, those pressure-packed moments, I, I don't understand how one can argue that a no-add all-deciding point is somehow less entertaining than a deuce point that leads to add-in or a, you know an add-in point that if you lose, you're back to deuce. Sudden death winner-take-all is as, as exciting as it gets. It's one-point winner on the line. And again, this is an exhibition event. This isn't or it's not a grand slam. It's not, you know, offering millions of dollars in prize money and offering and demanding all of these ranking points and dictating so many things moving forward. It's supposed to be fun, and that's what this event was. Now, ultimately, if you haven't learned over the past 45 minutes, the takeaway was Carlos Alcaraz. What he does in 2022 is one of the five most watchable storylines of the season, but just overall, it was a fantastic showcase for the game's next generation of ATP talent. Hopefully, this is an event that will continue to exist uh, throughout the rest of professional tennis's future because, again, if you're not excited about the game's future stars, you likely are not continuing to listen to this podcast. But with that in mind, I got to switch gears here a little bit further to go. Have to talk about Tommy Paul's title run in Stockholm. And again, it's indicative of the theme we have talked about. Out all season long. The next gen is here, and those original next gen campaigns were built around the guys born 1996 or later. And Tommy Paul, as a 1997, is a guy smack dab in the middle of that campaign. He's a former Junior Slam champion, two time Junior Slam finalist as well. And look, was one of the guys in American men's tennis over the past decade. And, you know, one of the guys to watch. He had a ton of challenger success. He's a guy who's won the French Open Wild Card Challenge and a guy who qualified for Grand Slams before turning 21 years old. And yet, you know, it took Tommy Paul a little bit longer than it took some of his other American contemporaries here to crack the ATP Top 50. Nevertheless, that's what he does with his title in Stockholm. And you look for Tommy Paul, about as successful as a run as you're going to see at an ATP 250 event. Gets wins over Taylor Fritz, Andy Murray, Francis Tiafo, Dennis Shapovalov, the last three matches against Murray, Tiafo and Shapovalov, all three set victories. You look for Tommy Paul, 19-8 and eight now since the start of the Cincinnati Masters event. And, of course, he goes through qualifying, wins a main draw around there, goes through qualifying, wins a main draw in Canada as well. He, uh, excuse me, since the beginning of Canada, not Cincinnati, 19-8, and eight, but, you know, wins matches at both of those events in the main draw and, you know, makes the round of 16 at Indian Wells, qualifies and wins another round at the Paris Masters as well. That's how you crack the top 50 down the home stretch of the season. What's so fascinating for Tommy, again, 14 and 15 from January through the City Open, 19 and 8 down the home stretch. The hold percentage has remained constant. He was 78.1% at the start of the year, 77.7% down the home stretch. What's changed is the break percentage. 20.5%, that's right around the average of the top 50, to 28.3%, that's a top 15 number. Tommy Paul is someone who has always flashed an all-court game, who's much like a, you know, again, a Lorenzo Musetti, has always been able to do plan B, plan C, plan D, has had the athleticism to match shot for shot with just about anyone. And, you know, as a guy who's as comfortable as the net as you're going to find from any American man and just can do a little bit of everything. And yet again, when you're a jack of all trades, it's really difficult to figure out what plan A should be. And that's what Tommy Paul has figured out here down the home stretch of this season. And what was so so particularly impressive in Stockholm was the forehand. 
The forehand was a plus one weapon. Tommy was hitting the forehand as well as I have ever seen him hit that wing. And again, for Tommy Paul throughout the course of this uh, tournament, just, you know, again, against Denis Shapovalov in that first set was just lights out in taking that 6-4 set. And just, you know, again, it was his ability to generate plus one balls off of that shot. And you look for him throughout the course of the tournament, he wins over 71% of his first serve points in every match that he plays, was over 82% in three out of the five matches as well. And just, you know, was broken serve, you know, one time or fewer in three out of his five victories and just was able to get the breaks back. And physically, you know, again, Tommy's always been able to match just about anyone because he is that sort of top tier athlete. He is a sort of guy who has that special fluidity in the outer thirds of the court and yet you know again as such he sometimes he's comfortable trying to go for the spectacular and playing in the outer thirds of the court and being comfortable six feet behind the baseline that wasn't the case for him in Stockholm was taking the ball early on the rise absorbed you know the forehand of Denis Shabovalov so well I think Tommy Paul matches up particularly well with lefties because that backhand is so fluid and it's not as constant with the depth and the power as a Sebastian Korda as an Alex Zverev and yet I think he's as, you know, fluid on that wing as just about anyone. He's plenty comfortable. You know, he's never going to get overwhelmed on that backhand side. Although, again, because he is so athletic, sometimes he finds himself pulling out of that shot. And sometimes, thus, it'll sit a little bit short in the court. That's just not what he was doing this week. His feet were under him. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but he was just on balance. That's probably the word. He was just on balance all week long. And just, again, transitioning from defense to offense from a fluidity standpoint what a battle of athleticism really in those final two matches between he and Tiafo and he and Shapovalov. And again, you know, earlier in the season, Tommy Paul is playing Sebastian Corda in uh, San Diego. Corda takes the first set. Paul bounces back, plays a really good first six games in the third set, but then Sebastian Corda pulls away and Tommy Paul had his chances to break, blows them and goes away down the home stretch of that third set. Now against Francis Tiafo, he's down a set. He's down, you know, gets broken for 6-5 in the second set. Tommy Paul gets the break back, 4-6 all, bounces back, takes the tiebreaker 7-5 and just, you know, gets the early break of serve and holds on to it down the home stretch, 4-6-4, third set victory, bounces back, 6-4 in the third again against Shapovalov and just, you know, it was all clicking for Tommy. You can just see the confidence that he's playing with now up to number 43 in the rankings. That's a career high for Tommy Paul and just... It's all starting to click. He's starting to figure out what plan A should be. He's starting to hit that plus one forehand more confidently moving forward uh, behind it. And just, again, that on-the-run forehand for him when he connects with it down the line. I don't want to say Alcaraz-esque, but it's just a special shot. He can do some really exciting things on the court. Again, 11th American male to make an ATP final. Hasn't, you know, that's more than 1999. You have to go back to the mid-90s to find a number that high. The craziest part is, yeah, Isner's still in the mix. And yeah, Sam Query's one of those other titles. But the other nine guys, you know, Mackie McDonald's 26 years old. And Tommy, Taylor, Riley, they're all still just 24 years old. And obviously Francis is 23. And Nakashima and Korda and Brooksby, they're all 21 and younger. And just all, I'm sure I forgot someone there. But all of these guys, you know, Kozlov, Wolf coming up the rankings as well. And just starting to play really good tennis once again. A lot of bites at the apple for these American men. And just, you know, again, Tommy Paul stepped up here, 19 and 8, 
since the start of the Canada Masters. That is a leap forward. He belongs in the ATP top 50 and now confidence on his side. Again, Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, his two closest friends for the longest of time that he can no longer hold over him, that they have ATP titles, and he does not because he earns his first ATP title, taking the win in Stockholm. Now, you know, again, in terms of the other results we saw there, good for Denis Shapovalov to reach the final. He won his first title in Stockholm back, I believe, in 2019. And, you know, for Shapovalov, I thought the focus he played with in the semifinals against Felix Ogier-Aliassime was particularly impressive. He broke Felix right off the bat, held on to that break to take the first set, gets a late break back in that set, or excuse me, breaks right back. I believe he got broken for 2-4, breaks right back for 4-3, or it was either he got broken for 3-2, breaks right back for 3-all in that second set. But just, you know, again, for Shapovalov, I think he's the next generation of Jack Sock. I mean, it's a little bit, I think, more fluid, a little bit in better shape uh, than Sock was at that age, but just the power they can play with. They're just gifted with that contact point, both wings for Shapovalov. And again, he's comfortable moving forward, but sometimes he knows he can hit the ball so well and he should be moving forward that he forces himself to the net. And yeah, it's plus one reliant, but he does have that fluidity and he flashes plenty of springiness in the outer thirds of the court and a great first step. Again, I think he's a good mover, not just a guy, you know, not just a guy who movement's going to be an issue for him. No, that speed, his ability to take that ball early on the rise and the strength he has there as well. I think that's a weapon for him on the court. And he showed it off against Felix and he showed it off against Tommy in that second set as well. And again, that third set I thought was a high level of tennis. Now Shapovalov gets a little bit too plan a centric and the errors can start to pile up and you know again finding that three quarters ball for him because his three quarters ball is still heavier and bigger than the majority of the top 50 players finding that ball with more frequency and not letting the errors pile up and maybe a little bit more diversity on that backhand wing although I really do love the way he hits through that one-hander I you know again B, C, need to get a little bit better. And I don't know if this was necessarily a step forward for Denis Shapovalov here this season. You look uh, for Denis overall on the year. Now, again, wasn't exactly a poor season for him. I believe he goes uh, 31 and 22 overall, 58% win percentage. That's above his career average. Hold serve 85.2% of the time. That's above his career average. Break serve 21.7% of the time. That's 2% above his career average. You know, first serve percentage above his career average. Second serve percentage a little bit below. By most metrics, it was another step forward for Denis Shapovalov. And let's be clear, he's going to have the year ranked inside the top 20, still just 22 years old. And yet it just, it, there was inconsistency that plagued Shapovalov throughout the course of the season. 30 and 22 overall just feels like there was a little bit there to be desired. And yeah, you know, he makes a final in Geneva, semifinals of Wimbledon, obviously the big run and, you know, finals here in Stockholm, impressive as well. But, you know, semifinals in Dubai, I guess too. But those, you know, that's really it. Just a lot of second round losses for him. And yeah, he cut out a lot of the first round losses, but, you know, just couldn't couldn't string together two, three, four successful tournaments in a row. And that's the difference between being, you know, a top 25 guy who flashes that sort of upside. And certainly it helps when that upside is shown at Wimbledon, when you can make the semifinal, beat Murray, Bautista, Gut, and Hachinov. But you just, it was, I don't know. I, I feel like we'd seen that from Denis Shapovalov before. And the high was a little bit higher, given it was a Wimbledon semifinal. But 
and the lows were a little bit higher as well. They were second-round losses instead of first-round losses. So I guess it is a step forward, but you just expected a little bit more for from him here this season. Nevertheless, he remains as dangerous as anyone because, again, that athleticism combination of speed and power, it's just a special, special combination. So continue to keep your eye out on Dennis Shapovalov. I don't think that's news to anyone. Ditto for Felix Oshir Aliasim, who I actually think pretty clearly took a step forward this season. Hold percentage, new career high. Break percentage, new career high. First serve win percentage, new career high. Second serve win percentage, new career high. Just across the board, win percentage overall, new career high. You know, he makes another what? How many finals did he end up making this season? I believe he made two uh, loses to Chilich and Dan Evans, respectively. But, of course, makes quarterfinals at uh, Wimbledon, makes semifinals at the U.S. Open. You know, that five-set loss to uh, Aslan Kartsev in the Australian Open round of 16. Far less puzzling at the end of the season than it was at the time. Yeah, there were there were some funky losses. Albert Ramos Vanolas at Indian Wells comes to mind and Dom Kopfer in Paris and, you know, I suppose Max Purcell in Tokyo and, you know, uh Seppi at Roland Garros. There were some stinkers. But I think the upside was better. I think the serve has gotten better, the forehand has gotten better, his comfort level moving forward has improved and just the strength has improved as well. He's gonna be a monster and that serve, that forehand, they're top tier. Those weapons are elite, and that's why he's in my guarantee to win a slam in the 2020s because he can hit a ball in ways five guys on the court can. And I just, I do think it's heavier than Shapovalov. I do. I, I know that's, you know, again, I would like to see more fluidity in the outer thirds. I would like to see a little bit more depth consistently on that backhand wing, but I think it's gotten better. And I just think when his serve and forehand are clicking, he will hit you off the court. And I, just, I think the weakness – you know, again, I, I don't see as much variance from him as I saw from Shapovalov throughout the course of the year. And I think the ceiling is even higher for Felix because I think the weapon is that much better holding serve 83.9% of the time. And, you know, again, the break percentage needs to get a little bit better. But uh, I'm in on Felix Ogiel. I assume he's going to end the year number 10 right now. Or he's currently 10th, I should say, in the ATP rankings. You look for Felix in the points race. He's 12th. Yeah. It's a hell of a season for the 21-year-old. Let's not forget, could have played the next-gen finals this year. And by the way, it feels like Francis Tiafo should be at the next-gen finals because I think this is the first one he didn't play as he was at the 2019, 18, and 17 events. Uh, but you look for Tiafo uh, here in 2021, 41 and 27 overall. And again, finals in Vienna, follows that up with a semifinal here in Stockholm and you know, fourth round U.S. Open and, you know, for him beat Tsitsipas at Wimbledon before reaching, you know, reaching third round there and, you know, second round loss for him to Djokovic in four sets at the Australian Open. Just unequivocal success for Francis here this season and you look overall uh, for Tiafo, new career high for him in hold percentage. Uh, he's holding serve 81.7% of the time. That's right above the top 50 average. New career high in break percentage over 20% for the first time in his career. Career highs in both uh, in his first serve percentage and a career high for him, I believe, in his second serve percentage as well. Yeah, big step forward for the 23-year-old. 38 in the current rankings inside the top 40 once again now he's not at his career high of 2019 uh, of 29 when he was number 29 in the world but he's a significantly better player than he was then and just go watch some of the on the run forehands he hit against Tommy Paul in that semifinal he served for the match and just 
the forehand is no longer a liability. The racket speed it makes it, and the you know the backswing has condensed, and the racket speed's now at the point where he does get through that swing quick enough. And the backhand has always been rock solid, and just the variety he plays with his comfort level moving forward, his combination of speed and strength. Francis is here to stay. That's what's so exciting about these Americans is, A, it feels like they can continue to get better, and, B, it just feels sustainable. It's not fluke runs. It's not, you know, again, off the back of one significant result at a master or one significant slam run. They did it all season long. Francis unequivocally got better this season. Great run for him in Stockholm. And then just quickly, lastly, I thought Andy Murray looked so good in that win against Yannick Sinner. That's the best match he's played in the comeback tour. Better than the match against Tsitsipas at the U.S. Open. Better than the match, you know, that he won at Wimbledon uh, against Basilishvili. And, you know, better than his match. Just the best, better than his win over Hoopy Hercots in Vienna. It was just the best that he'd played, period. And just, you know, again, he was able to match the physicality of Yannick Sinner. He was able to track down that ball in the forehand corner, able to track down balls to not only get a ball and slice the backhand, but actually hit through that backhand wing. And he was able to dictate against Sinner as well, keep up with the serve plus one and just, you know, again, hit through his return of serve as opposed to hit and slice and just the depth he was getting. Yeah, he loses in three sets to Tommy Paul, but Tommy Paul played exceptional in that quarterfinal match. And you know, for Andy now 2016 and 16 here in his last 52, he's holding serve 81.1% of the time, breaking serve 23.4% of the time. Those are both top 30-ish numbers. And for Andy Murray now, who's number 134 in the rankings, he's going to crack the top 100 on his own. He's obviously getting wild cards into any event he wants to play, but the level has returned. I think he's playing at a top 50 level. Once again, the physicality is back, how well he moves the ball around the court, how well he can do a little bit of everything. The serve continues to look better as well. And he just is improving as a mover. I think if he stays healthy, he'll get back in the top 50. And that's incredible. Just given... Again, I thought how poor he looked at Wimbledon and just given all of the health issues he's gone through throughout the course of these past few seasons, if he can get back into the top 50, it doesn't matter if he doesn't win another slam. It doesn't matter if he doesn't win another title. He's going to get to craft his own schedule at the end of his career, not be reliant on wild cards. That is all Andy Murray could ever ask for and just continue to give himself bites at the apple because, yeah, he's won some impressive matches, wins over Alcaraz, wins over Sinner, wins over Hercots and Tiafo. Hasn't strung two of them back-to-back in a row quite yet. That's obviously the next component. That's what gets you back in the top 100 on your own volition, gets you back into the top 50. But he gets better with every match. And I think for us fans, that's the notable takeaway. Now, again, that's all of your ATP-level action. Two quick challenger notes before we wrap today's show. Shout-out to Chris Eubanks, who we got to see at the Lotto Elite Pro Challenge back in August before the U.S. Open. And I said it on the podcast then. Ernest Golbus backhand, I mean, it was clearly a top 100 weapon when he stepped into it, the pace, the momentum, just the drive he got behind it. You could tell that ball was different than everyone else's. And then the Eubanks serve and plus one forehand. And there was just a consistency that Chris was hitting it with that you just didn't see from him early in his career. And just, again, the comfort level swinging through that backhand and the physicality, just how more much more comfortable he was as a mover. You look for Eubanks, he you know didn't drop a set in his quarterfinal, semifinal, or final wins over Christian Harrison, Bjorn Fertangelo, and Daniel Altmaier, respectively, and just was rock solid on serve. He 
you know, wins over 82% of his first serve points for the tournament and, you know, was broken a grand total, I believe, of seven times throughout the course of his five matches. Didn't face a break point in a one-hour, 12-minute final. Was out of off the court in under an hour and a half in, you know, three out of his, uh, five, uh, four out of his five matches. 2-6-6-2-6-3 win over Rashik Pospisil in round one, hour 23 minutes. It's got to be a record, record low for a three-cent match and just... You know, again, the serve, the plus one forehand, when they're landing, Eubanks is a tough out because it's just tough to keep pace with them. They're top 100 weapons. And yeah, you know, again, it's a very, it's a little bit one speed, although the backhand slice has gotten better and he becomes more comfortable at volleying, it feels like, with every passing day. But that top speed is good enough. Again, that serve is going to give anyone troubles. And, you know, for him now up to number 149, that's two off his career ranking from 2019 of 147. But again, he's a better player than he was then. And you look for him this season, wins at the Orlando Challenger. Now win here at Knoxville, qualified at Indian Wells, qualified at the U.S. Open with wins over Daniel Galan and Sebastian Baez. A top 100 push is very much in the cards for the 25-year-old. And again, it feels like an old 25, only 25 years old, six foot seven frame, still feels like he's growing into it. And just, again, the better he becomes as a mover, the better he becomes as a returner. And that's the big thing for him this season, that break percentage inching closer and closer to 20%. He's holding serve 84% of the time. He can hold serve at a top 100 level. Can he break serves of top 100 players? That's obviously going to be the question for him, particularly on that backhand wing. But the serve, the plus one forehand, pro weapons, uh, top 100 weapons, excuse me, 30 and 21 overall on the season is Eubanks. You look for him in the points race now. Chris Eubanks currently at number 143. Yeah, he gets into Australian Open qualifying. And by the way, the race to the Australian Open wildcard challenge. Right now, Stefan Kozlov in the lead entering your final event of the season, in uh, of the wildcard challenge in Champagne. Right now, overall, uh, you look at those rankings. Kozlov, Currently in the lead after that comes J.J. Wolf, 109 points. So it's a 26-point deficit between he and Kozlov. Then you're at Mo, 58 points. Maxime Cressy, 48 points. Think it's impossible for Chris Eubanks to match it. I'm not sure if he's playing Knoxville this week. I don't think he, uh, excuse me, Champagne this week. I don't think he is playing Champagne. So impossible for him to win the wildcard challenge. But, you know, again, It's a heck of a run for him, confidence booster to end this season. And then, you know, again, shout out to Max Cressy, who's also had a really good year. Cressy into another challenger final this week uh, as he reaches the, uh, this past week as he reaches the final in Italy before getting knocked out by Ota. Uh, Max Cressy, 24 years old, 109 in the points race this season. 109. I mean, yes. Serve and volley, you know it's coming. It's going to make you uncomfortable. It's very much one speed. He's going to chip and charge, and it's not conventional, but it freaking works. Incredible, you know, if it works, it works. Maxime Cressy's game is fascinating, and it gets the job done. 109 in the points race. That's a heck of a season for the 24 year old former UCLA All American. And then Talon Greek Sport, challenger title number eight. 65th now in the live rankings, primarily on challenger result. You look for him 51st in the points race, 59 and 17 overall. It's a 78% win percentage. Talon Griegspor now since losing to Novak Djokovic at the 2021 U.S. Open. He's won 25 straight matches. 25 straight matches. Come on now. Come on, 26. Excuse me, I forgot his Davis Cup win over Martin Cuevas. 26 straight matches. 
I don't know what to say, folks. That's as good as it gets. You know what else is as good as it gets? Paul Jubb, three-cent win over Adrian Boyton in the final of the 25K this past week in Harlingen, Texas, of course, for Boyton. He's going to be one of, if not the top-ranked player in men's college tennis throughout the course of the year. The power tennis he can play, it's pro speed. And, you know, again, it feels like he's still just scratching the surface of how good he can be. Again, for the former NCAA champ, though, in Paul Jubb, that's another futures title for him as he continues to work his way towards top 200, put himself in a position to be consistently playing at the challenger level. Uh, But again, those are your big results last week. I still... Talent Greek Sports now won, yeah, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 26 consecutive matches. 26! How many has he dropped sets in? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 7 of the 26 he's dropped sets in. That's it. Yeah, that's nuts. Then you deserve to be a top 75 player. Shout out to you, Talent Greek Sport, who, by the way, 25 years old, born in 1996 far from old this is when you hit the prime of your career he has clearly hit it here down the home stretch but that's where we're at after last week's atp tour action and again i didn't talk wta finals i didn't talk peng shui i'm not avoiding it i'm just waiting for ben rothenberg to join me on a podcast that should drop later today either on this feed or the great shot podcast feed as again we try to keep you all up to date on all of the action happening across the tennis world busy times here as we go towards our final week of ATP and WTA tour-level action. Of course, there will still be some challengers, some ITFs for us to discuss, but then we shift into off-season mode as we prepare all of you for both the college and pro tennis 2022 seasons, of course. All of that content going to be available on our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, our mini, our Great Shot podcast, Cracked Interviews podcast, and Cracked Rackets YouTube channels to ensure you don't miss out on any of the action of course if you need the more immediate updates twitter instagram facebook youtube we are at crack rackets you want to message me directly i am at great shot pod a shout out as always to our super producers max Fleener and daniel westoff for the of an editing job they do day in day out shout out as well to our friends at tennis point remember tennis point.com the promo code is cr15 with all of that said for our super producers, Fleetner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.